Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I am Nathan Fox and in D.C. Are, are you in D.C. or are you in Virginia? It's Ben Olson. Yeah, uh, no, I'm in D.C. today. You're in the office. Yeah. Cool. How's everything in D.C.? How's business? How's how's life? Uh, it's good. It's kind of an unusually cool uh, summer, I think, so far. So it's been nice to not be totally drained by that. Um, business is good. The class, my first class for the October LSAT starts this Saturday, and it's pretty much full, so that's exciting. And yeah, I'm excited to get back into it. Enjoying the break, huh? Ready to get back into it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nice. Yeah, my class is, my class is going. Uh, I started last week. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm full too. I've moved into a slightly smaller classroom. I've actually only got room for 24 now in my class. So my classes are going to be full for uh, the rest of the year, I think, which is fine. That, that's fine. I'll have a waiting list, I think, but that's that's okay. There's there's good things about that, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to have a smaller class. And yeah, it's nice. I I, um, I like my new venue anyways. It's like this little old hotel in Union Square. Um, and it's got just one classroom, which is located directly above the bar. There's a bar downstairs, which is open until 10. So like my kids are, I've got them trained. They're like bringing cocktails into class and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. So uh, why did you decide to move? Um, the new venue is a lot cheaper and it's just, they, they've been really great to work with so far. Um, there's a whole bunch of construction going on in downtown San Francisco. I, the, the economic crisis just like never hit San Francisco and mm-hmm. it's just been going nuts with construction. So, uh, one of the major projects is they're, they're digging a tunnel all the way underneath Stockton street and expanding the Muni line to connect it from market all the way out to Chinatown. And, um, is is the Muni line the buses system or the train Mu- system? Muni, kind of confusing, I know. Muni refers to both the bus system and the train system, but when people usually when people say Muni, they really are referring to the train. Okay. Uh, even though the buses are also Muni, but the yeah. the the Muni line that they're doing underground is uh yeah that's the train they're connecting it to the the rest of the underground train system, and they're going all the way out to Chinatown, which means that. All of Stockton Street, which is where my old venue, I was at the Hyatt, and the the old, um, that whole area is just blown up. Also, Apple ha- is um, totally demolishing the old Levi's flagship uh, store and rebuilding a brand new flagship Apple store, like right next to the Hyatt. So anyway, the Hyatt has been like under construction, and um, it's just been, it was starting to get tough to get the right classroom space. So I'm now at the Chancellor Hotel, which is just this little old hotel, and um, it's nice. I'm like getting to be on the fir- uh, first name basis with all of the people there, and that, that's that's kind of nice because the Hyatt was like huge, so it felt uh, anonymous. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm digging it. It's good. And tutoring, you still doing tutoring right now too? Yes. Um, during the day, I'm doing tutoring. I do some at night, but it, I've kind of avoided that. A little bit because I can't take that many people on at night when the classes are in full swing. So yeah, yeah, I do. I I've been doing both. I've been busy, um, especially now with Skype. I just am 
people are wanting from all over the place are wanting to do tutoring um, all the time. So that's been good. But yeah, I'll be ready when um, I'm sure this is you're the same as me, right? Like starting now, it's just busy all the way till December, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'll be looking and forward I, to a nice. You teach break. a class for February, or I, I what I've done historically is I teach one one month class, like starting in the middle of January, just leading up to February. But no, I don't teach in December. Okay, yeah. So I have a class that starts at the end of November for the February test. Oh. And so, yeah, starting this Saturday, it'll pretty much go <laughs> until the till the end of February. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. I I need the long break away. I actually need multiple long breaks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I might just be adapting to the the Washington D.C. Type A sort of climate. There are people <laughs> who want to do that and they want to start in November. So, uh, accommodating. Yeah, yeah. Well, make hay while the sun shines. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Did someone told me you have nine law schools in D.C.? Is that right? Or in, uh, in the area? Now that you asked me the exact number, I'm not sure, oh. but it's it's definitely somewhere between seven and nine. So okay. There's, I don't know if there's nine in the district, but you have George Mason, which is just outside of the district. You have UVA, which is actually a couple hours away, but I think people kind of consider it part of the the schools in the area because it's such a good school. Um, yeah, there's a lot of schools here. Cool. Well, um, good luck with your fall schedule. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Today on the show, we have three questions from listeners who are asking various questions surrounding the idea of retaking the LSAT. We have one question from a student who is self-studying, and she lists a bunch of the books that she's using, and um, we're going to talk about those if we can and see if we can give her any other tips for how to self-study, especially on a budget. And if we have time, we will do a question from the June 2007 LSAT, which we've been very slowly working our way through. But if we get there, we'll get there. Uh, sound good, Ben? Yeah. Okay, cool. So the uh, first question I have here from Dylan, I'm going to paraphrase this. Dylan says, I have a 3.5 GPA, and a business economics minor, and just got my first LSAT back, which was a 163. I had been scoring around this range consistently, although I had gotten two 167s and two 166s, but 162 was the most common score. Dylan says, basically asking about rolling admissions versus, uh, so applying early for rolling admissions versus taking it again and potentially getting a higher score. Would it be worth it to take it again and possibly have a great day, or should I take the perks that may come with applying early. What do you think, Ben? I guess I feel like in this environment, the benefits of applying on October 1st versus maybe November 1st or the middle of November, depending on when the score comes out, is minimal. And it sounds like, I mean, he got the score that sort of fits what his scores were. But if he studied between now and October and he saw a noticeable shift in the range of scores that he got, I would say I think it's valuable to take it again because 
if he did go up, let's say he got a 166 the second time, which would not be totally unreasonable, um, I think that would make a bigger difference in his applications than the fact that he applied on October 1st versus November 15th. And if he doesn't get, if he doesn't see the range, his range increase, then don't take it and apply with the 163. Um, that's what I would say. Yeah, I used to really hammer on my students about applying early in the cycle. And I wouldn't have said October 1st, I would have said September 1st. Um, because, you know, I, I would have said, listen, you want to be the first in line. But these days, yeah, things have changed. Um, as far as I know, there are still some law schools out there that are actually accepting applications currently for the fall, for the fall of this year. Wow. Uh, because the deadlines have just gotten really pushed. Uh, they're desperate for students. And so if you're, if you're listening to this later in the future, it's July. Right. And we're talking about people who are going to be matriculating in August about two months from now. Yeah, right, right. Um, it's July 8th, and law schools are going to start on roughly September 1st. And as far as I know, there are still some schools that are accepting applications. That's um, crazy. Yeah, which this is totally unprecedented in, in my career as an LSAT teacher. So this is like the time to apply. I mean, not now. I wouldn't... <laughs> I would not. I would not do that if I were. I would say, okay, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to apply for 2016 admission. Mm -hmm. um, I'll apply early in the cycle for 2016 admission, and then watch you guys fight over me. That's that's what I really would encourage people to do. But so to to answer Dylan's question, yeah, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of those schools, especially the ones that have pushed their deadlines way back. I mean, they're going to be, if they're desperate now for getting students in for the 2015 class, imagine how desperate they're going to be for the 2016 class after doing this total shift in their admissions calendar. Because what they're really doing is they're cannibalizing them themselves, right? The, yeah. the people who are applying now to start law school in 2015 would have been applying this fall to start school in 2016 if it weren't for these deadlines getting pushed back. Yeah. So I, I think that these same schools are kind of, it's a little bit like they're just racking up the credit card debt. Um, they're, I think if they're hurting now, they're going to, they're going to be hurting even more um, next year. And that's nothing but good news for law school applicants, of course. Mm -hmm. Bad for my friends um, in the law school business. You know, I'm not, uh, this is not like schadenfreude or anything, but I, I just, it's, it's good for my students, so that's what I'm really happy about. Anyway, for Dylan, yeah, I, I think, let's say, just using Ben's example, if, if Dylan takes it again and gets a 166, I think the value of applying with a 166 instead of a 163 pretty dramatically outweighs the value of applying um, in October versus applying in November. Because yeah. they're, they're just not going to be... They're, the classes are certainly not going to be full um, when Dylan applies in November. So I, I'm going to have to soften my stance a little bit on insisting that people apply early. This year, when people take the fall LSAT or when people take even the December LSAT, I'm still going to be pretty happy for them to just go ahead and apply um, and feel like they're not applying too late in the cycle. I don't think I feel the same way about the February test. 
No, I feel I still feel like that's late in the game and really a last ditch effort. Yeah, and it and it makes you look non attorney like or in a way, you know, you're you're applying like at the deadline. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I think the law schools are they're going to be looking to take advantage of you when you do that. They're they're going to be they're going to be thinking, well, this is someone who because they're applying late, they're indicating to us that they maybe aren't as savvy and we could maybe get away with not giving them the scholarship money that they deserve. So Exactly. Yeah, so I would I would definitely not apply later than say January and I would apply earlier if possible. But yeah, if you could get a few more LSAT points, I think that really kind of changes what sort of an applicant you are in the eyes of the schools. One thing he says here is that my question is for someone who have very little time these next few months, and I don't think that he's alone in that way. He's saying he has a 60-hour work week, and he's 25 credits. Holy smokes. Sounds like a lot. Um I still think that despite his limited time, there's very, very little risk here. He just tries to do it again, and if he's not hitting the numbers he wants to hit before he takes it, he can withdraw and just stick with his 163. So I think he can press forward now regardless of what's going to happen because he's going to have more information once he gets closer to the actual test. Did he have time to study for the LSAT or did he not? I mean, hopefully he does. I think it's going to be worth it. But yeah. if he somehow doesn't, there's no risk with having attempted to study for it. Not to mention um, law schools really only care about your highest score. If he did take it again and got a 162, I don't see that hurting his case at all. Yeah, I'm... I mean, I guess I'd rather apply with just a 163, but it, the, the, the damage is going to be very minimal, is, is, at least in my mind. I, I can't imagine that even being damaging. I mean, maybe at Harvard or something, but I if he's applying to any school outside of the very, very top, I just can't imagine that they're even going to give a shit that he took it again and got a 162. I think they're going to say, well, we're going to report him to the ABA as a 163. We're going to report him to U.S. News and World Report as a 163. He's a 163, so who cares if he gets a 162 or a 160 on his record? I um, guess I'm just thinking of the subjective element depend, that's going to vary, not from school to school, but from individual to individual. And some people may, for whatever reason, subjectively take that into account. Yeah. Or not even maybe realize that they're taking it into account. Yeah, but then again, I mean, you're right, but that's only going to apply when he's at the margin. And... I just don't, it's not that likely that he's going to be at the margin that, that many times. Yeah. You know, at, at most of the times, if a 163 was going to get him in, then a 162 would have get him in, got him in anyway. That's true. And so I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't think there's that much of a risk in retaking. The other thing that I would say is, and you're, and you're absolutely right, that if, if his practice test scores go down or if he doesn't have time to take any practice tests in between now and October 3rd, then yeah, go ahead and withdraw, and you know, or don't 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 take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, and, and yeah, he's he's obviously clearly busy. I don't know how someone is. It almost seems like a typo. Sixty hour work weeks and twenty five credits. That's oh, I don't know. I couldn't do either one of those, let alone both of them simultaneously. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty funny. So um, yeah, twenty five credits. I mean, isn't isn't it normally like fifteen? Fifteen or would be credits? average at most schools. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that so. sounds like a lot just to do just to be doing school. 
He yeah. says he's going to graduate in three years. So maybe, wow. He's a lawyer, man. He's like, yeah. He's he, ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he'll be a natural fit, right, for, for law school and for legal practice. That's great. Yep. Good job, Dylan. Um, it seems like you're on the right career path. Uh, it, but I, the other thing I wanted to add here was that the fact that he's already got a couple 167s and a couple 166s on his record indicates that he he does have a fairly good handle on the LSAT. And even if he didn't find very much time to study in the next few months, I don't think he would need very much time to study in the next few months. Um, I agree. Not, at least not to just kind of stay sharp and keep himself in that same range and give himself a chance at 167 or 166, right? If he, was, if he wanted to shoot for 170, if he wanted to raise his practice test average significantly, then I think he'd need to put in some significant study. But... For maintenance purposes, I just don't think someone who already got this good at the test needs to do that much to stay sharp. Yeah, I, and I think we've talked about this before, but because the test is a skills-based test and not really, oh, let's cram and learn a lot of the knowledge, Right. Um, that's both good and bad. It's good be- for Dylan because if he's already sort of getting closer to those skills, he's like you're saying, he's not going to have to do much more to increase it and he's not going to lose it. I think a lot of people are worried about, oh, I haven't been studying for the last month. I'm going to lose it. You start studying again, it's going to come back because it's not, it's not like you've memorized things. Exactly. But the flip side of that, the bad side about it being a skills test is it does take work to improve, which is why I think it's a pretty good indicator of your success in law school. Well, we've said that a million times, right? It's a test of how hard you can work. Like yeah. if you if you improve your LSAT score by ten points, it means you busted your ass, and mm-hmm. that's what they want to know is, is are you willing to bust your ass? So and I yeah I mean I would be down with Dylan um, studying maybe a little bit here and there like in his crazy week could he find what do you think three hours a week? Yeah, could he take a test one weekend morning, you know, or something like that? And, but then you got to review it. So maybe the next week you, or maybe you take a half a test and review it. Yeah, I'd like to see him squeeze in sections, you know, individual sections. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that 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 would be easier. Like if he could do random sections throughout the week. I'm just thinking sometimes people feel like you know, oh, I can dedicate this block of time on Sunday morning. Yeah, that that could work too. Well, anyway, however he divides it up, one test a week and really review it thoroughly and make sure that he's looking at his mistakes and figuring out why he's making the mistakes he's making. Mm-hmm. I, I almost think one test a week, that's got to be enough. I think you can improve doing one test a week. I don't know why not. Yeah. Um, and that's a total investment of, we're talking about four hours a week maybe, if yep. you do the test and review it thoroughly. Um, and yeah, then middle of September, you decide whether or not you're going to take the test. Sure. All right. There you go, Dylan. Um, moving on. I have a student, Lauren, who uh, she was in my class. She kicked ass. She scored a 170 on the June exam. And because she's also destined to be a lawyer, she is wanting to retake the test in October. So... Here's what she says. She, she's calling the 170 a low score, um, and this is why. She didn't get lower than 172 on her last 10 practice tests. She hit 174 six times. She got over 175 more than once. 
Um, she doesn't really know why she scored 170 on the June test. And she's trying to make a plan for preparing to retake it in October 3rd. She says, on the one hand, I don't want to burn myself out. Um, one of the things I have going for me is the fact that I enjoy myself while I'm taking the test. If I overdo it, I worry that I will just be tired of taking the test and that'll hurt me. On the other hand, she says she doesn't want to underdo it because the blessing in disguise here is that she now has a few months to try to push past her 174 uh, plateau. Plateau. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's kind of funny. Sorry, Lauren. We're going to laugh at you a little bit. No, yeah, no offense. I just, um, uh, that's a, it's a great plateau to have. Yeah, and she doesn't want to get cold, and she does say she wants to improve as much as possible. She wants tips on how to pace that out. She also says that she's burned through all of the 20 most recent LSATs, and so she doesn't know if she should redo those or to go back further into old tests. Um, what do you think, then? So, I think some of what we were saying for Dylan applies here, actually applies even more to Lauren. Her skills are definitely up there. Um, I am actually, I, I think that some people would say, and maybe you would say this too, but maybe not to retake it because she got such a good score. But given her score history... I I feel like even if she just went and took it again right now, odds are she could pop up to 177 or something like that. Totally. So, um, and that would be really nice to have, given the school she's probably going to be applying to. So I think it's good that she's thinking about retaking it. And in terms of redoing tests, I would say probably redo the most recent ones and then aim for 178 plus on hopefully all of them if she has it's kind of tough because we don't know which ones she's done very recently but depending on the recent tests that she has done maybe there are some that she hasn't done in a month or two those would be a higher priority in my mind yeah i agree and i would say um I have this list. You know I sent that list to one of our listeners of the hardest questions from old tests. Uh-huh. So one thing I've been telling people to do recently who have been in a similar situation, they were scoring very high and they um, one person got a 169 and they kind of almost exactly like Lauren. Um, actually, one of them had hit 180 on one of their practice tests. But um, I told them... Take the retake one test a week from the more recent tests, and then during the week, go through this list of super hard questions. I basically gave them the 600 hardest questions from tests 19 to 61, and just go through them and start doing them whenever you have time so that they're focusing on the questions that people uh, tend to get wrong. And so, I don't know, I just look at it as a way of sort of prioritizing so that they're not burning through a lot of easy questions and wasting time on things that they're always going to get correct no matter what they do between now and October. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely only encourage very, very high scorers to do this. But, yeah. the you know, I, in fact, because I think it could be completely um, demotivating and counterproductive if anybody 
like even if you were scoring 160 and you tried to do this, I would I would worry that you're going to be actually studying questions that are so difficult and so strange that that you're going to be I don't know, focusing on like minutia instead of focusing on the the bigger bulk of the test. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of these questions that are super super hard are nuanced in a way that are it's going to throw you off if you're trying to focus on the big picture and if you're getting in the one low 160s or mid 160s even you're getting a lot of questions wrong that are still pretty core to the test and you need to figure those out first and i should say that for the people who i have given this list to um they come back, and these are 170ers. You know, they're scoring in the mid-170s, and they say, I get half of them wrong. <laughs> and it's kind of a new world for them because they're so used to getting the vast majority of everything correct and occasionally getting one or two wrong. But these are the one or two that they're typically getting wrong in the test, and I've just put them together in a list. And so, yeah. I mean, one thing I can do is post this on the, the blog, but it's definitely for... People who are scoring in the 170s. Yeah, if we're gonna there. if we're gonna post that, I would put a big disclaimer up there that like don't do this unless you're. I would almost say you should already be at 170 before you touch these questions because it. Um, you're right that it for you know for somebody like Lauren, this is going to be an opportunity for her to learn. She's probably already got three ways of answering most questions correctly. But there's mm-hmm. some questions where she needs to get even more nuanced approaches and she needs to have four and five different ways to get there. And mm-hmm. so these are the questions that are going to sort of per- push her to see different aspects of the test yeah. that she's not currently seeing. So I, I do I do like that. I just, with the one caveat that, boy, this is really only for people that are like 97th percentile already. So this is not something that I would recommend for almost anybody. Yeah. Um, that's a good idea. I, I also think the first thing that you said, Ben, is the thing that I agree with the most, which is if Lauren went and sat and took the LSAT again today, um, I would bet on her to score higher than her 170. And that's yep. just based on her practice test result. So it's hard for people to accept, but this 170 that she got in June doesn't have to mean anything at all. It could just be you know, everybody, even the really good students have plus or minus three or four points around their practice test average. So if she was averaging 174 and she got a 170, I think that's well within the realm of just random normal fluctuation. And But 177 or 178 would also be within the realm of random normal fluctuation. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's possible that she could do almost nothing in between now and October and still end up scoring 175 or higher. Yes. when she retook it um it says she says here that she she has the orange book so that's the third book of prep tests that's right 29 to 38 29 to 38 and if she hasn't done those i mean those are not super old um i i don't see why she wouldn't do do those um if she hasn't done them yeah i definitely agree there's a value to put priority on those. My only concern would be, and this is something we've talked about before, but I really do think the reading comp are easier in that. I, I consistently hear people go back and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing really well in reading comp, and then they come back up to the more recent tests and they don't do so well. So we're trying to like 
in my mind, we're trying to value, well, here's a test you haven't seen before. That's really important and valuable. But also uh, the recent tests, at least in terms of reading comp, in my mind, offer something that these tests in my mind, don't offer. So a mix of, I mean, just to be clear, you're not saying that doing the orange book would hurt her because it's got easier reading comprehension. You're just no, saying- No, it wouldn't hurt her. It's just kind of misleading, I think, sometimes with reading comp, at least. Okay. So, um, and I don't think she has any problem in reading comprehension anyway. So I, I don't, I think it's probably fine. I, and then it could be really good for her, actually, to do those tougher logic games that are in that orange book. Yes, the games are harder and strange. So. Yeah. so maybe she could do a mix of sections from the orange, you know, do all the games in the orange book, do some of the LR from the orange book, um, do a full test or two from the orange book, and then focus on doing redoing um, whatever most recent tests she hasn't, uh, hasn't super recently done. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, when she does those, she should be like uh, intending to score 178 or whatever. Since yep. she's seen them before. Um, and then I guess the most important thing I would say is just don't burn yourself out, Lauren. Um, you, it is great that you, that you enjoy the test. And enjoying the test is one of the reasons why you score in the 170s. We could argue about the chicken versus the egg there. But it's whatever the case. I mean, <laughs> enjoying the test certainly does help you to score better. So um, don't you know, just this studying for another three months could be pretty painful if you're not, if you're not happy about it is probably bad. So I I tell this to people generally, just don't study when you're not happy about studying. Yeah. Um, Because you need to train yourself to, the LSAT needs to be an enjoyable experience for you um, on the day of the test. So when you're practicing, you should practice when you're happy. not when you're all tired and burned out and pissed off. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. Andre says, took the LSAT twice, took the blueprint course for the first attempt and scored a 155. Then for the second attempt, he had, which was December of last year, he had practice test 52 through 69, practiced by doing timed sections, took a practice test twice a week. That's when his practice test scores really started to go up, which doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, you really have to do tests and timed sections in order to get your score increase. Yeah. Um, he said he was averaging 163, 164 with a range between 161 and 168. And the score came back, and it was a 157. Um, He doesn't say how he felt it went on the day of the test, which would have been interesting to me. Because this is, you know, below what I would have expected. Yeah. Although it's not shockingly below you know 160 if it's if he's averaging 163 164 and he scores a 157 that's a bad day but it's not like it's not like that's an impossibly bad day not impossibly bad but decisively bad i think well decisively bad enough that it's an obvious retake yeah Um, which makes it easier to make that decision 
Sure. That's this is a clear retake. This will be attempt number three. Um, I'm confused as to why he did not take the February test or the June 2015 test. I think that though that would be my first bit of advice would be, you know, keep the ball rolling and just take the next one. I don't understand why people take half a year in between their in between their tests. Um, but I guess that ship has already sailed. The breakdown, he's got the breakdown in here. He said he usually misses like one or two on logic games, and on this one he missed five. Okay, that's not terribly bad. He usually misses four or five on logical reasoning in each section, and here he, he missed seven on one of the sections and minus 11 on the other section. Um, there's your problem, you know, that's, that's, that's where things obviously went wrong. Yeah. Reading comprehension also sucked. He said he usually misses five or seven and instead he missed nine. He sums up with, I came up with two possible reasons. I don't agree with either of these reasons. The first reason that Andre proposes is that when I was taking practice tests for the December test, I was only taking four section tests rather than five section tests. Um, I don't think that can be the issue. That could only be part of the problem, even if it was part of the problem. It would be very small. I think well, I think it can have a, an effect, but it's going to be, it's not going to be six points. Well, it didn't affect all of the sections on the test that he took. Right. It wouldn't affect the first four. <laughs> That's what I would assume. And he did worse on all the sections. So, you know, the the four sections versus five sections here sounds a little bit like an excuse. Um, I mean, not that he's making excuses, but he's he's grasping at straws here trying to come up with a reason, and I don't think that's the reason. Yep. Um, second, he says taking the, the real LSAT is always a little harder than taking it at home, so it's expected that you might score a few points less than your practice test average. That I wanted to talk about with you. What do you, what do you think about that? Well... So I don't think the actual LSAT is harder, but I do think that the way people respond to the test environment, because it's the official thing, is what messes them up. So by saying so by saying taking the LSAT is a little harder, um, it sounds to me like he rushed. So, yeah, exactly, totally. And he may have rushed because a lot of his points, well, anyways, because he just, got more wrong in all the sections, especially in logical reasoning, which sounds like a rushing issue. And so that might be because he was taking the real LSAT and he let himself go too fast or try to get a perfect score and finish everything with a little extra time or who knows, you know, you do weird things. And so that aspect of taking the real test, I think does make it harder, but it's not because the LSAT itself is actually harder. Uh, that said, I think that different tests play to different people's strengths and weaknesses. So like if a game section is really hard, that's going to hurt a lot of people. But for some people who really are really good at games, that's actually the test they want to take because the other two sections are probably going to be a little bit easier to compensate for the hard games, and that plays into their strengths and weaknesses. So maybe this test was randomly harder for him, but it doesn't really have anything to do with 
the fact that it was the real thing. No, it can be randomly harder in a lot of different ways, too. Like, if section one is logic games, and if it's a section that doesn't quite fit your eye, or if it's just a kind of a tougher section of logic games, and because it's section one for you, if you choke on it, then it can make you choke on the entire rest of the test. Sure. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that could have happened, like a cascade failure kind of a thing could have happened here for him. I definitely think rushing is a really good candidate. Um, You just, how do you miss 11 questions on logical reasoning if you're, if you've been used to missing only four or five, well, you're just not engaging there. There's no way you miss 11 questions if you're being patient and calm and just answering the questions. You're just not going to miss that many. So it seems to me that, yeah, he he maybe, I don't know, yeah, overconfident. Um, boy, shooting for too high of a score is a really bad plan. Um, I've been making fun recently of that, you know, that, uh, that, state, that saying that's like, uh, shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you'll hit the stars or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I want to burn down any of those posters that I see uh, because especially on the LSAT, you know, Andre was averaging a 163, 164, and it sounds like he might've been happy with a 163 or 164. But my guess is he went into the test and he was like, okay, this is it. This is the day. This is game day. I'm going to kill this thing. I'm going to get a 170. And in order to get a 170, you kind of have to answer all the questions. And, Mm -hmm. He, it seems to me, my, my hypothesis would be, he tried to answer all the questions and get a 170, and he's not ready to get a 170, and he was skimming the surface of the questions and not going deep enough, and he then, because of that, ended up missing way too many of the questions. And so shooting for a 170, in that context, I think shooting for a 170 can actually prevent you from getting a 163 or 164. Yeah. And you can end up with a 157. I agree. So it's more like, you know, shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you're going to blow up on the launch pad. Yep. And, and that that seems to be what... I mean, that, that actually seems really pretty common. So that's my guess. I think maybe when he starts doing practice tests again, he needs to just commit to the idea that he's going to score at least a 163 on his practice tests and just that's the that's the first priority is to like get all of them right in the first 10 or get all of them right in the first 15 of each section and then make sure that you get your 160 something and then if it works out that he ends up finishing the sections and you know he might get a 170 but you just have to secure those earlier, easier questions first in order to get your 160 something. And then maybe you, you can end up kind of accidentally getting a 170. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my guess. It, to go back to this thing about taking the real LSAT is always a little harder than taking it at home. And it's expected that you might score a few points less than your practice test average. I hear a lot of people saying this, and I'm guessing that that's just like, the conventional wisdom that's out there on the bulletin boards or whatever. But I don't think that, you know, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy if you believe it to be true. And I don't, I don't, I, one, I don't think it has to be true at all. 
Um, frequently, people score higher on their actual test than they did on their practice test. I scored higher on my actual test than I did on any of my practice tests. Um, it can happen. I don't think there's any reason why it can't happen. It happens all the time. <laughs> and so this, you know, I don't know why people are so attached to this idea that taking the real, the, the real official thing has to necessarily be harder. Mm -hmm. um, you're still going to be doing 35-minute timed sections of exactly the same kind of stuff that you've been doing in all your practice tests. All your practice tests in their day were real LSAT tests. So, I don't know. I think people just need to let go of this idea that taking the real thing has to be harder. No, it definitely does not have to be harder. I think it's just harder because, like you're saying, they they let it be harder right. by being more stressed about it. I think I would replace that with like an, a different, like tell yourself a different story. You know, I, I like to tell my students, hey, here's the experience that, that I had on the day of the test, and I think this is the experience that you can have on the day of the test. I don't know about you, but when I'm doing my practice tests, Sometimes it's hard for me to take it seriously because I know that I don't have to be doing it. I know that it doesn't count. I know that I could be outside, um, you know, drinking a beer in the sunshine. And mm -hmm. I sometimes start daydreaming during the actual, during, during my practice tests. Well, during the actual test, that's not going to happen. During the actual test, it's much easier to focus. During the actual yeah. test... Uh, you're going to have maybe a little bit of kind of a, uh, an energy boost because you're going to have an adrenaline thing where you understand that this is the real deal and everybody's there taking this real test. And, you know, um, sure, sometimes that kind of thing can make you nervous, but it also might make you perform even better because you're going to be, you know, on. Um, and I think if you... Not that you can like outsmart yourself or, or lie to yourself or anything, but I mean, I think those are true stories. I think that that's a real thing that really can happen. And so maybe I would focus on that rather than focus on, oh, I'm going to panic on the day of the test. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think that's about it. You have anything else for Andre? Uh, I would just say that when... It, looking at his logical reasoning, because that seems to be the, the most challenging part of this test for him, yeah. is that he, he probably rushed. And if he did, it's almost certain that when he read the passage for each individual question, he wasn't really thinking about what he was reading. I mean, that's kind of inherent in rushing. But I just want to take a moment to say that so many times I talk to people and they read the passage and then they choose the wrong answer and they want to understand why the right answer is right or why that wrong answer is wrong. Yeah. And I'm trying to say, well, tell me what happened in the passage. Right. And they're like, yeah, yeah, well, I already see why these are wrong. And nine times out of 10, their problem stems from a misunderstanding of exactly what the passage said. Yeah. And so it's great to talk about the differences between the two answer choices. And that does matter, especially as the questions get harder. Some of these questions are really, or answer choices are really close to each other. But I think there's this sense out there that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what was said or 
Yeah. You know, like, totally. come on, let's move into the, the real stuff here. Totally. And I'm like, this is the real stuff. You didn't understand that last, sen- last sentence in the passage perfectly. You have like a rough sense and that's exactly what they're exploiting. Right. And I think when people go take the test officially and they rush, that's exactly what they do. They, they read the passage and like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And, and instead of just sitting there and thinking, okay, well, where's the conclusion? If there is one, um, what was the evidence they used to support that conclusion? Why does that fail? If it does, it sometimes doesn't, but it almost always does. And then, oh, okay, yeah, I see why this is wrong. And they think, I don't have time for that. But you, that's, you don't have time not to do that. Exactly. Because once you do that, the answers go really fast as opposed to sitting there mulling over two answer choices or multiple answer choices and burning up time that people don't really realize that they're burning up because it's sort of like a time warp. They're in their own head, like going back and forth through answer choices because they didn't take the time to actually think about what was said before. <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because it's just so, so totally true. And I mean, it's, it's going to be, this is going to be the the problem, like 95% of the time when you miss a logical reasoning question, the reason why you missed it is not because uh, it has nothing to do with the answer choices. The reason why you missed the question is because you didn't understand exactly what was in the argument. Um, or when you read the question stem, you misidentified the type of question or you don't know how to do that type of question. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of that has anything to do with the answer choices. That, that's, all, that's all something that you could do covering the answer choices up. Um, if you put me or Ben in, you know, if you put a brand new LSAT test in front of, of um, either me or Ben and you just covered up the answer choices, we would still tell you what the answer is almost all the time. Or we would tell you the gist of it almost all the time. And it would take us a minute because what we're going to do is we're going to read that argument carefully enough to where we really, really understand what the evidence is. We really understand what the conclusion is and we really understand what's wrong with that. And once we do that, we're equipped to answer any question. And by the time we go looking into the answer choices, it just doesn't take us that long. We very quickly dismiss wrong answer choices, answer choices that don't make sense, answer choices that just aren't on target. We frequently don't even have to read the whole answer choice in order to know that it's not the answer. And you might be picking one of those answers because you didn't understand the argument. Um, yeah. the, the, when you do it the right way, when you slow down and you really attack the argument, then the correct answers just start to jump right off the page at you. And the wrong answers look really wrong and the right answers look really right. And then it's like they're glowing on the page. And then that's how Ben goes fast. That's how I go fast is that I spend half the time on the answer choices as the typical student. You know, I spend 50% more time on the argument than the typical student does. And then I spend half the time or less when I'm going through the answer choices as a typical student would. Yeah. But the students do it the exact opposite, huh? I mean, I, I mean, that's the feeling I get, especially in class. There's sort of this sense like, okay, he's talking about the passage. 
he's asking me questions about the passage and sometimes not everyone i'm just saying occasionally there's this sense of like yeah 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 okay let's get into why d is wrong you know <laughs> and i understand that desire to like sort of move along and sort of get cut to the chase but um unfortunately although that helps with that particular question it doesn't help with attacking the next question because yeah. the problem is really something that happens earlier. Yeah, well, and anyway, they're not even going to fully understand why D's wrong until they understand the argument. And, you know, and yeah. so like you're by looking at D, you can't just look at D until you understand why it's wrong. You have to look at the argument to understand why D's wrong. Yeah. Um it's funny because the test tells you you chose a wrong answer. So then I guess it's human nature to like start looking at that answer and try to figure out why it's wrong. The test never tells you you didn't understand the argument. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to convince yourself like, oh no, I can read, I read it, oh, I got it. But then, no, you didn't. Because if you, if you would have read the argument better, you would not have even considered D to be at all a good choice. Or maybe you read the argument and you understood it, but you didn't understand, you didn't take the time to think about what's wrong with that. You, you just accepted the logic as if it were good. And I start asking you or you start asking them about the logic and they're like, well, I mean, yeah, sure, why not? And you say, why not? <laughs> or they'll <laughs> go, I've, my kids are trained to like say bullshit, you know, because I, I, I'm mm -hmm. telling them, okay, what you have to do is you have to read this and then you have to tell me why it's bullshit. And they'll 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 read it and they'll go, well, yeah, it's bullshit. And I'll go, okay, why? Why? Yeah. And then they'll go, well, because they just they can't just say that, or they'll come up with like some, you know, <laughs> well, because this person's you know biased or whatever. And it's like, no, no, that that's not that's not the point. Yeah. Look a little closer. Look again at their evidence. See what they're talking about there in the evidence. Oh, okay. Now look again at the conclusion. See what they're talking about in the conclusion. Oh, and, uh, you know, and then once it, it clicks, then now they don't, now they're no longer attached to the difference between B and D because they realize, oh shit, uh, there was this glaring flaw in the argument and that's just going to be the answer. Yep. Now, when you do first start studying and I, uh, it's going to take time to identify the conclusion sometimes, uh, usually it's obvious, but sometimes it's hard at first identifying the premises, figuring out why they don't prove the conclusion. All that stuff takes time. And I think sometimes people are thinking, I don't have time to figure out what's wrong with this argument. And it's true, where you're at now, you don't have time to figure out what's wrong with the argument and finish this test or even do a lot of it. But the reality is, if you do practice that, if you do stop and identify the different parts of the argument and say, okay, I know that's the conclusion. I know that's the evidence. And now let me see. Okay, here's what's wrong with it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. If you do take that time now, it will become lightning fast. Not always. There are definitely some arguments where I read them like, hmm, sounds pretty good, but let me go back and see what's wrong yeah. with it. But for so many of them, especially at the beginning of the logical reasoning section, it's like your brain has been trained. And so now you're not even done with the argument. You just read a correlation and your brain's thinking it's probably going to be a causal conclusion. And lo and behold, it is. And you're like, flaw. And you know it right <laughs> away. And yep. but that you're not going to develop that skill if you continually just skip over it and try to like work through this. It's almost like you're developing different skills by like looking at the correct answer or the, yeah. the answers and trying to sort of jimmy one into it. Yeah, totally.
Yeah, if if you want to score really high, the best recipe is just focus on accuracy. Don't let yourself miss any questions in the first 10. Slow down. Make sure you understand them. Make sure you're not making those mistakes. If you don't make those mistakes, then you're going to be understanding the test. You're going to be learning more. You're going to be learning faster. The test is going to start to seem easier to you. And eventually, you'll be able to go much deeper into the section. But on day one, I don't care if you get to question number 25. I don't care if you get to question number 20. I don't care, really, I don't care if you get to question number 15. If you do number 1 through 10 and you get them all right, then that means you're on the right track. Um, and and I, I just, I can't overstate the importance of that. It's, it's, it's like the key to doing well on the test is to slow down enough and really understand what's there. There's no, it's not a gimmick. You know, mm -hmm. there's not a, it's not, this isn't some gimmicky thing where you're going to be employing these like cheesy half-assed strategies and narrowing it down to a 50-50 and guessing. Like that's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is totally dominating the test by really understanding the arguments and predicting the answers way before you even look at the answer choices. People, people really need to cover up the answer choices. You need to cover up the answer choices and you need to tell them what the answer is before you look at the answer choices in many, many cases. Yeah. I mean, I would say for sure every main conclusion question, for sure every flaw question, for sure every sufficient assumption question, you need to tell them what the answer is before you look at the answer choices. I agree. And for strengthen, weaken, many other types of questions, there's going to be an incomplete argument, and you need to tell them why the argument is incomplete. Even if you can't exactly state what the correct answer turns out to be, you need to at least notice why the argument is incomplete. Be able to articulate, well, here's some problems. Here are some questions I would ask if I was the attorney in the room. You need to engage with it on that level before you look at the answer choices. Once you do that, the answer choices are going to be a lot easier to sort through. Um, but, you know, the typical novice does the exact opposite of that, skims through the argument and gets right into the answer choices, mm -hmm. which, you know, four out of five of those answer choices are wrong. And you're going to be just spending a whole bunch of time looking at wrong answer choices. Yeah. And on the easy questions, you get it right, and you think, hey, this process is working for me, but it's not really a long-term solution. Yeah, or, or you get seven out of the first ten right, and you think that's good. Mm -hmm. But seven out of the first ten is actually pretty shitty. You yep. know? <laughs> if you want to score 160, you don't get there by getting seven out of the first ten. The easiest way to get to 160 is to get nine out of ten or ten out of ten on the first ten. Yeah. I, I should point out, I have noticed that there are there is a very difficult question that the LSAT likes to put in in question 7, 8, 9, or 10. So occasionally you may hit a very hard one there, and that's just, I don't know yeah, what they're I'm, doing. I'm but, not saying every single question. Man, I looked at, uh, uh, I got the LSAT super prep in my hand the other day, and that's a book that I almost never use. So that's got prep test A, B, and C. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and the difficulty at the back. Oh, it does. I didn't even I didn't even pay attention to that. Well, anyway, yeah. I, question number one in one of the logical reasoning questions I thought was or sections I thought was really hard. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so whatever, it happens, right? I'm not saying every single question in the first 10 is super easy. Yeah. Um, but I am saying, you know, if you didn't, I could just look, if you get, if you didn't get nine or 10 out of the first 10, you're not getting 170. Yeah. Pretty much period. Like that, <laughs> I mean, I... I, I've, I, I suppose it's possible, but that would be a fluke to get eight out of the first 10 and score 170. Well, it would mean you get the rest right and you'd say, what the heck happened? Like, why did you miss <laughs> yeah. three? That would be a crazy fluke in order for that to happen. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you, if uh, just whatever, just stop skimming the surface, I think is my, my, my most important thing that I could teach you. And if you do all 25 questions, but you only got... 15 of them right and you're scoring 155 or whatever and you think that's good that's not really good and you're actually impeding your own future progress Mm -hmm. because you're not going deep enough so you're not really understanding so you're not really learning yeah and you can continue to get 150s and 155s and you know hammer those out and think you're doing a lot of work but you're not doing the work because all you're doing is kind of gaming it and kind of skimming it and not really getting it yeah. And I would much prefer that you just run out of time but get almost all of the questions that you attempt right because if you do that then you you're getting it and you're going to learn and you're going to eventually go faster. Your mind will go faster because it now knows how to do it and it starts doing it for you. It does. You start answering the question before you even read the question part, right? You're yeah. halfway through the argument and you're like, "Oh, I see what they're going to do here. I bet I know what they're going to say next. Oh, I bet I know what their question they're going to ask. Oh, I know what the answer is going to be." Yep. And sure enough, you're right on all of those counts because you've because you're going a little bit more slowly and a little bit more carefully. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing how um little time I need to spend on the answer choices. Very frequently uh you know, especially like say on a um parallel reasoning is a perfect example. Right? Matching pattern question mm-hmm. or matching mm-hmm. flaw question. Yeah. There's so th- those questions can look like they're going to take forever because they take up a whole column on the page and it's like holy shit look at all these words and oh I'm just going to skip it. Well, what I might be able to do or what Ben might be able to do is just read the argument, really understand what's there, spot the flaw if there is one or spot the obvious pattern of reasoning if there is one. And then once you start looking at those answer choices, you can read one sentence and stop reading it. Yep. Because it's just not on the right track. It's just not going to be the answer. But you can't do that if you didn't know what was in the stimulus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Enough, I think, about that, probably. <laughs> Anything else we got for um, for Andre? No. Good luck. <laughs> good luck, Andre. Thanks for your, uh, thanks for your letter. Um, okay, we got one more question here. This is um, shifting gears a little bit. Beth emailed. She's taking the October test. She is working full time. She is uh, she can't afford a prep class because of her. She says ridiculously low pay as a teacher, and her mom has recent cancer diagnosis. Wow. Okay. So sorry about all that. Yeah. Um, can't take a practice test or sorry, can't take a, a prep course. She says, and I've heard this before ben i imagine you've heard something like this before too my first two practice tests went well around 151 and 154 without ever really taking uh without ever really cracking a prep book i then bought cracking the lsat which is a princeton review book 
and Kaplan's LSAT book mm-hmm. and went through those books. Uh, since reading those books during practice tests, I find myself stressing so much about timing that I neglect strategies and techniques and I'm struggling particularly in the arguments and my score has actually gone down. She says wow. on the, yeah, on the arguments, she says that's where she's especially struggling and she ends up finishing with five to 10 minutes left. What? Yeah. She says she's now, since then, she's bought the Princeton Review workout that goes deeper into their techniques. I think that was a mistake. Yep. She says she's also bought the Power Score Bibles for reading comprehension and for arguments. And she's going through these books and studying strategies before trying another prep test. I think we can really help Beth. What do you, what do yes. you want to, what do you want to say? Well, um, I mean, this actually just ties into what we were just talking about. She says she's struggling the most in arguments, yet she ends up finishing with five to ten minutes left. There's your problem. Clearly. There, there are occasionally people in my class, one every year, six months, who finish the section five to ten minutes early, you know, unusually early, and they aced it all, and they're just like really fast readers. That's faster than me. I usually finish with one or two minutes left. And partly that's because I think I pace it out. Like I don't rush if I don't need to rush. But I don't know about your experience, but if someone is finishing that early, unless they're acing the section, I would say, what the heck are you doing with that time? And so here she's obviously rushing. She's worrying about strategies. I wonder if those books talk too much about timing. They absolutely talk too much about timing. Matter of fact, every prep book I've ever seen talks way too much about timing. They... They kill students by saying, you know, there's 35 minutes in a section and there's 25 questions. And if you divide 35 minutes by 25, then that means that you have 85 seconds per question. So in order to finish, you need to finish each section in 85 seconds. Oh and my gosh! You'd have no idea how. What do you have like a mental clock going or something? Or, you or what are you looking at the like, clock? You're looking at the watch 30 oh, times I've, I've per hit second. My, Oh, that is so bad. It's so bad, actually. We just have to say that because <laughs> you're, if you're thinking about the time, you know, we've talked about using watches before, and, and I, I'm actually, I actually do use a watch, but I, I only check once or twice in the section just to kind of get a sense of where I'm at. Um, and I know you would say don't use a watch at all. Well, but I'm willing to compromise on that. I mean, if you're going to bring a watch, and it, the only thing is just – don't look at it too much. Do no. not look at it more than once or twice per section. I would say if you look at it three times in the section, you definitely looked at it too many times. Sure, I agree. Okay, good. So I'm I'm using it just to like make sure, oh, if I'm dogging it and I didn't realize I was going slow because my I was just too absorbed into the test or something ridiculous like that. But I mean, you can't be too absorbed. But if I just, just to say, oh, oops, I, I need to probably pick it up a little bit just so I finish on time and not be stressed or whatever. That's that's solely what I'm using it for. But if you're thinking about time at all during an individual question or in, even in the middle of a game or a passage or something like that, you cannot think about time and think about the meaning of the sentence that you're reading. It's just, it's yep. impossible. And unfortunately what happens is people keep reading that sentence Words come in, I think, on the left side of your brain, 
or right side or whatever, and you're, you're, the time is the front and center. And so there is this perception that you have taken information in. You know, it's like when you're talking to someone and you start thinking about something else, and then when they're done, you're like, yeah, okay, I know you were talking about how you don't want to continue going to school. or You know, some, there was like this, you do, words do go into your brain somehow, but it's not anywhere close to what you need them to be to analyze them, to understand them, to do what you have to do. And so that's exactly why it's a problem. And it's just ridiculous to even think about the average. People ask me about the average all the time. And I tell them, um, well, I think, I mean, I know the answer. It's like, it's a minute, 20 seconds or something like that. Oh, that's what you just said, actually. I think you said 80 seconds. 85 seconds, I think. Okay, so it's somewhere around there. But I'm like, some questions take literally 30 seconds. And right. I wouldn't know that they took 30 seconds to go random. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just did that question in 30 seconds because it was easy or whatever. And then some take two and a half minutes and I don't have a problem with that because it was a two and a half minute question and there's not that many of them, but whatever, I got it right. And I had the time to do it because I went faster on the other ones. Whoop-de-doo. I had no idea that it was way over 85 seconds. Totally. And everybody listening, Ben is getting a little bit feisty about this issue. I want you to notice. <laughs> and that's because this is really, really fucking important. I mean, this is this is like I can just guarantee that this is where Beth is killing herself is because she's going too fast. She's thinking way too much about the time, um, you know, finishing with five to ten minutes left. I might finish with five minutes left sometimes, but I'm a expert and a professional and i've been doing this for a decade now Mm -hmm. um i would never i don't think finish with 10 minutes left i i i I don't think that is i don't i don't think that's what would happen if i sat down and did a timed section i don't think i would finish with 10 minutes left i don't think i ever would finish with 10 minutes left and if i'm not finishing with 10 minutes left then you know beth should not be finishing with 10 minutes left no way No way. And if you did, fine, whatever. Like, if you got them all right, then, like, sometimes that happens. And I say, wow, you're amazing. You read faster than I read. I I can't do that to students who do this, you know? And if you do that, then great. But that would would only be acceptable if you could produce a minus zero. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. Um, If if you're, I mean, Beth, my guess is Beth shouldn't even be finishing the section. No. She doesn't say, she's she's like, we, we need to get into the idea that, it seems clear to me that she's also just not doing enough practice tests. Yeah. But because she's like anxious about it now. But um, when she's, if she started at a 151 or 154, well, she wouldn't, she shouldn't have finished the sections if she scores a 151 or a 154. If you're scoring 151 or 154, you should be doing like maybe the first 20 questions in each section. You should not be doing the whole section. Yeah. Because what you're doing is you're skimming the surface and you're, you're just not really getting it. Also, I should say this again, it's probably the hundredth time we've said it on the show, but the ones near the end of the section tend to be harder. So if you're finishing the section, but you're missing a whole bunch of them, like you're, you're wasting time on hard questions that you don't even understand. Mm-hmm. So instead, invest that time in the earlier, easier questions and focus on getting those right. It's a much easier way to get yourself 155 or 160. And you got to get your 155 or 160 before you can get your 165 or 170. So let's just all calm the fuck down and stop going so fast and go deeper. I mean, maybe they need to be convinced. Maybe people need to realize that this shit is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, like what are you doing? You're not even doing it. 
they're not doing it. They think they're doing it, but they're not even doing it. They're just kind of skimming it and kind of whatever. And they, they're, they're like not understanding at all. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm not like hammering on Beth here. What I'm hammering on is, you know, these books, these Kaplan and Princeton books, please people go to Amazon and read the reviews. Okay. The reviews of these books are terrible because these books are terrible. Yeah. And Beth here, you know, she got the first Princeton book cracking the LSAT that made her score go down. So then she bought another Princeton book and that's, I don't know. I mean, that's it, you know, one, I, my guess is that she bought these from a bookstore because, um, Kaplan and Princeton have these like national, you know, presences and these national marketing teams and they can get distribution in bookstores where someone like me who does self-publishing, I can't get distribution in bookstores, but my books are all available on Amazon. And I think if you read my reviews versus reading the reviews of these other books, you're going to, I don't know. Um, well, you can be the judge, but it doesn't seem like these books are working for Beth. And so if I were Beth, I would burn them. <laughs> yeah, burn them. That'd well, I good. wouldn't give them away to anybody unless yeah. I was giving it to my enemies because sure. this, this is not going to help anybody. It doesn't. It's not helping Beth. It's not going to help anybody, and she needs to get rid of these books. Instead of these stupid strategy books, which are clearly not helping, she needs to practice doing 35-minute timed sections. Slowly. Slowly and getting them right and relentlessly, ruthlessly reviewing her mistakes and figuring out why she's making the mistakes she's making. She yeah. did score a 151 or a 154 cold, which indicates that she's not a bad reader, right? I mean, no. this is somebody I mean, that's who a could, good starting score. Totally. She could end up with 170. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised at all if she ended up with 170. And you can't get 170 without, like, really understanding it. Mm -hmm. So she's capable of understanding it. But instead, she's, like, looking at these strategy books, and she's got this weird timing stuff going on in her head, and she's thinking, I don't know what she's thinking about, but she's thinking about the wrong shit. Mm -hmm. And I think instead, 35 minutes on the clock, then ignore the clock, focus on the questions, focus on understanding them, focus on answering them with accuracy, answering them with certainty. When time's up, you go back and you correct your test, and then you look at the ones you missed and you say, man, I need to not miss this question. What did I do wrong? And you need to figure that out because yeah, that question is going to appear again. Yep. That's it. Sorry. Go ahead, Ben. No, uh, I was just going to clarify. You say when the time's up, you, you know, you, you grade it. And I, I'm sure this is also what you meant, but you're not going to be finishing. So when the time is up, just mark where you got, you, you say you got to question 20 yep. and then who cares? Just sit there and finish the section. Those are good questions. You can do them and learn from them, but don't worry that you're doing them after the time. Yeah, that's to me. I mean, that's totally fine. That, that's a little bit less important to me because the, you know, Beth's problem is not in question 21 through 25 anyway. Mm -hmm. Beth's current problem is she's missing lots of questions in the first 10. And those questions that she's missing in the first 10 are fundamental issues that are going to pop up again and again and again and again on the test. And she's going to just keep missing them until she understands why she's missing them. So if she didn't, you know, yeah, that's fine. You want to do the rest of the questions in the section? That's fine. For fun? That's fine. But those ones are actually beyond your current level anyway, on average. 
So what I'm really concerned about is just of the ones you did attempt, did you get them all right? Because if because that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you're supposed mm-hmm. to you're supposed to do questions and get them right. So if you're doing questions and getting them wrong, then we need to think about why you're getting those ones wrong. And that's I, I think what Beth has going on here is too much theory, especially some really bad theory uh, that she's gotten from those Kaplan and Princeton books. Yeah. And she needs to really focus on practice tests, practice sections, and reviewing her mistakes. Yep. That's that's my advice. I'm sure that's, yeah, that's your advice too. Yep. The Power Score Bibles, um, I would not burn those. I would, but I would not necessarily really focus on them either because I think what Beth has done here is she's like over smart, outsmarted herself. Yep. You know, she's, she's, she's thinking that this test is something that it's not. She's thinking that she's thinking that common sense is not going to work. And I think common sense is going to work. And so my prescription might be like, okay, no theory for the next two weeks. Uh, For the next two weeks, all you're allowed to do is do a 35 minute section and then review it. Yeah. And then tomorrow do another 35 minute section and review it. And two weeks from now, you will have, accumulated a big list of questions that you've missed and that you maybe don't quite understand. And then that might be the time to dig into the power score, um, logical reasoning Bible Mm -hmm. and try to see if you can read up on some of the fundamentals of the question types that you seem to be missing a lot of because fundamentally the power score Bible is good and it'll, it, it might help you to understand, but the theory first thing without actually doing any practice one i don't think you can even understand the theory without the practice and two the test is not a test of theory the test is a test of 35 minute timed sections and if you're not doing that you're not actually really even doing your lsat practice so anyway that's where i would go I agree, and I think when um, I think Beth's case is significant because she's so concerned about theory, and she's just been reading these books before she's going to take another test. But when she does start, after she does some practice tests, and she's purged herself of <laughs> this, uh, you know, over concern with theory and so forth, and strategies and techniques and timing and all that stuff. Once she gets kind of clear-headed again, and she's starting to. Uh, review questions when she does pull out the power score bibles i would say probably shoot to read one chapter i don't know how long they are but maybe one chapter a week a tiny tiny bit yeah a tiny bit so you read that chapter and then you that's all you're going to be able to if you're going to incorporate anything from that into your practice study it wouldn't make sense to read three chapters or even two because then all of a sudden you're like oh i've got to think about this and i got to think about that if you when you do start bringing in an understanding of the test when it comes to techniques and so forth you can only really incorporate one or two ideas totally. at your totally. next practice section so yeah i mean let's say you're an olympic uh high diver and you're looking to bring some, some new moves to the 2020 olympics or whatever, um, 
you're not going to like read up on 10 different dives and go try them all at once. Mm-hmm. Right? You're going to no. you're going to maybe study one new move, one new variation on a dive you already know how to do. And you're going to study that and then you're going to go practice the shit out of it until you can nail it. And then you're going to go try to incorporate another new move. Mm-hmm. Beth's doing the exact opposite of that. Beth has a pile of now one, two, three, four, five strategy books. Mm-hmm. And she's only reading strategy and she's not doing any practice. Stuff. I think she needs to do pretty much the exact opposite of that. Yep. I love this idea. I, lo- I really do like that idea, Ben. That's the smart. That's a really smart thing to say. It's just like, yeah, do read the power. Because yeah, totally the power score logical reasoning Bible. Man, if you tried to do that thing from front to back your head would be spinning with all of the different strategies, I think. Mm-hmm. So instead, get yourself one of those LSAT books of 10 tests, get volume four and or volume five, and break it up into sections and just, yeah, okay. If you read up a little bit in the Power Score Bible and you learn some new techniques for necessary assumption questions, that's great. But now go back and do another week worth of 35-minute mixed sections and hopefully you'll get more of the necessary assumption questions right because you've got this fresh in your mind strategy about necessary assumption questions. Yeah. Great. I think that could help a lot. By the way, you know, this is going to help you get over your test anxiety because you're going to be constantly exposing yourself to the pressure cooker of the timed 35-minute section. Um, you're going to be, by the way, ignoring the clock during these 35-minute sections. If you want to te- check once or twice, that's fine. Just don't check too much. And hopefully you'll start to feel more calm when you're doing these sections because you'll realize, you know, to get a 160, I don't even need to finish this section. No. All I need to do is really get them right. The ones that I do attempt, I need to get them right. And I'm, I've am i been doing that every day, you know? I, every day this week I did one 35-minute timed section and I've been getting more and more of the ones I attempt right and I haven't been finishing the sections, but that doesn't matter because my scores are going up. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully you can take that same kind of mojo with you on the day of the actual official LSAT and just realize, oh, it's fine. I'm going to let everybody else have a panic attack and try to get to the end and finish early. I'm, I'm going to not finish early. I'm just going to get all the ones that I attempt right. Yeah. It's very consistent, by the way. I think I know I've said this before, but it's very consistent in my classes that the people who finish really early never do good mm-hmm. when i when i do a practice test if i look around the room and i see there's eight minutes left and somebody is finished i it's almost guaranteed that they just missed half the question yep okay um hey so one one side note here i yeah that was when i like five seven years ago i can't it was a long time ago uh i used to ride the metro a lot and i noticed the kaplan had these lsat class ads and their main tagline was more people get into law school through after taking like an LSAT Kaplan LSAT class than all other LSAT courses combined and then you know they had a little star and it would go down and had some study that they cited and I just remember always like looking at that and I said wow that's that's great. You can like go take a class with the masses, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? So not, not, especially since, I mean, I just feel like so many 
capping classes are just uh, targeting. They're good at marketing. I mean, they're good at sales and advertising, you know, they're, yeah. I mean, more people eat McDonald's cheeseburgers than any other kind of cheeseburger. <laughs> yep. You know, they must be good. Must be the best one. It's, it's an LSAT logical reasoning question. Yeah. You know, um, it is a fact. I'll accept it as a fact. More people get into law school having gone to a Kaplan class than any other LSAT prep. Therefore, if you want to get into law school, you should go to a Kaplan class. That's, that is, what's the flaw? <laughs> you know, it's a, whatever, it's correlation causation. It's, yeah. you're, you're neglecting the possibility that maybe just more people take Kaplan classes. You're... Well, there's just so much left out of there too, right? Like, what law <laughs> schools are we talking about here? <laughs> That's also true. Yeah, right. Um, but definitely, the just the huge volume. I think, um, yeah, I haven't seen those ads recently, so I almost wonder if it's not true anymore, given the rise of so many other decent national companies, you know? Yeah, unfortunately, man, when you look in bookstores, the, the selection of books, um, not that bookstores really exist that much anymore, but when you do look in, in on the shelf in bookstores, I still always see Kaplan, Princeton, and like Barron's. Barron's, the green Barron, avoid that at all costs, please. Yeah. Has it, made up questions and stuff yeah. that I'm like, what are they talking about here? I don't even know what, is this even a section on the test? So Yeah, it's, it's, it's really pretty, pretty tragic. Um, I think people could do perfectly well on the LSAT without any of these books, right? If they just got themselves a big stack of, of actual official LSAT tests and studied the shit out of it, I think they would be fine. Yeah. Um, one more tip just for Beth, because she's on this um, budget and she's, and she's um, really particularly worried about it. We've talked about this before on the show, but a study partner could go a long way for somebody like Beth. Um, you do a 35 minute section every day by yourself you mark down the ones that you missed then on a saturday or a sunday you get together for a coffee or a beer with a study partner who has done the same sections as you did mm -hmm. then you say hey um june 2013 section one uh, i missed number five and i can't really understand it can you explain it to me and more often than not your study partner is going to be able to explain it to you if not, if it's reversed, if you, your study partner missed number five and you got number five right, that might even be better for you because now you get the opportunity to teach your study partner. And teaching is probably the best way to learn uh, or the best way to sort of really solidify it and make sure that, you're, that you really do understand it and you're getting it right for the right reasons. This is free. This costs nothing. It costs the price of a coffee or a beer. Um, so if it's at all possible for Beth, I would love for her to hook up with a study partner. I think that she could make this be less of an anxious experience, maybe more of a fun experience, might be more motivating to have a study partner that you know you're going to meet up with once a week, so you better do your homework. And I think she could learn a lot this way. Um, I think she could learn more this way than by reading endless LSAT theory. I completely agree. Cool. Well, I think that's another show in the books. What do you think? I think so. Yeah. Um, 
we'd love to hear what you thought about the show. So please um, email us. I, my individual email address is Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. You can email us both at help at thinkinglsat.com. Um, oh, quick book announcement. The Logic Games book that we've been promising for so long is coming out. Sample content is going to be released. I think probably by the time you hear this, it's already going to be distributed to the list. Um, it's coming out with Nathan Fox on it, not Nathan Fox and Ben Olson. Uh, that's not because Ben and I are breaking up or anything. It's just because... Um, as it turns out, it's kind of hard to, uh, writing is hard enough and writing with two people, I think is even harder. Um, I don't know, Ben, anything you want to say about that? Yeah. Um, that's basically it. And so I think it's going to be an awesome book, but I think it'll be best if you just take what we have and, and go with it, I guess. So... <laughs> Cool. Well, I, I still will want your, uh, you know, input on the book and, um, I look forward to sharing it with you and with our audience, uh, very shortly. So that's going to be called the Fox LSAT logic games playbook and sample chapters are imminently going to be released. Uh, I promise this time, this is, uh, this is definitely happening. So anyways, yeah. thanks for listening, Ben. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, thank you. We'll, we'll talk to you next time. Cool. See ya.